One of the most dominant attitudes of human depravity that flows from the wellspring of selfishness and pride in the human heart is that of self-sufficiency. Mankind is convinced that he knows everything and that he can do anything and that he does not need to submit to any kind of authority. We see this even from birth with our dear children. It's not long until our children are convinced that they can do anything and everything. They're constantly saying, no, I can do it. Let me have my own my own way. And by the time our children become teenagers, even as we once did, many of us that are older, by the time they're teenagers, they're convinced that they are basically God possessing all of his attributes because certainly they are omniscient. They are convinced that they know everything, at least more than their parents. They're also convinced that they're omnipotent. They're indestructible that they can do anything if they just believe in themselves, as television commonly tells them. They believe that they are holy in certain ways because they have deceptive hearts that are able to justify every action, and they come up with their own standards of righteousness to which they can adhere. And they even believe at some level that they are sovereign because If you've ever noticed it with teenagers, they expect everybody to somehow bow before them and do what they say. And of course, by the time we reach adulthood, reality wakes us up a bit and we realize that we aren't as self-sufficient as we thought. And yet we can't stand it. And so we end up doing all we can to convince ourselves and others that we really don't need anyone except ourselves, and certainly in our culture, we don't need God. I'm reminded of the psalmist who said in Psalm 2 and verse 1, why do the people imagine a vain thing? In other words, when people have any kind of opposition to the sovereign rule of Christ, it is utter folly. This whole idea of somehow living your life on your own, devising your own plans, conspiring against the purposes of God that are clearly set forth in his word is utter foolishness. And yet fallen man lives life as if God doesn't exist. All you have to do is leave this place right now and look around and you will find that most people have nothing to do with the church service because they have nothing to do with God. There's no consideration of sin in their heart, no consideration of a divine law that we have somehow violated. Therefore, there's no sense of needing to somehow be reconciled to a holy God, even though conscience is constantly telling them just that. There's no thought that We could not even take our next breath without God's mercy. And certainly there's no thought that apart from his mercy and his grace, we have no hope of salvation, no hope of eternal life. 
but rather because of our rabid commitment to self-sufficiency and self-determination, we live life either A, utterly indifferent to God's rule, or B, we're aware that he is there, but we resent it and we rebel against him. What I've just described is basically the essence of humanism, which is really the philosophy that dominates our culture today. Before we get into the text in Matthew 19, I wanted to set the stage a bit to get you thinking about the way unbelievers think and unfortunately, many times the way we tend to think. I did a little research again this week, just thinking through the beliefs of humanists and some of their practices. And I was looking at some of their manifestos, especially the humanist manifesto number two that was done in 1973. Let me just share with you a few of the themes from that document and from this particular philosophy. And you're going to see many of the same parallels with the issues that Jesus addresses in our text today. As you think about the roots of humanism, they, for the most part, trace their roots back to rational philosophy, first created in the West in ancient Greece. And many of them, by the way, would regard Socrates as the first and the greatest of all humanists. They value knowledge based on reason and hard evidence rather than on faith. Being secular humanists, they reject the concept of a personal God and regard human beings as supreme. And from this belief naturally flows this thought, and I quote, the preciousness and dignity of the individual person, which is central to the humanist value. They reject a created universe in favor of the theory of evolution and a universe that obeys natural laws. They reject divinely inspired ethical and moral codes in favor of codes derived by reason from the human condition. They have the belief that full responsibility for the future of the world and its political systems, its ecology, and so on, rests solely within human beings. There is no God in heaven to intervene to save us from any kind of a disaster, so it's all up to us. They feel that religious groups, quote, promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. They accept democracy and reject both theocracy and secular dictatorships as political systems that are dangerous to individual freedoms. And they are certainly energetic, if not rabid, supporters of the separation of church and state. They tend to have every or very liberal beliefs about controversial ethical topics like abortion, corporal punishment of children, the death penalty, enforced prayer in schools, homosexuality, and physician-assisted suicide, to mention but a few. They believe that, and I quote, moral values derive their source from human experience, end quote. And since most of them believe that the, an afterlife is non-existent, they regard life here on earth as particularly precious, and that's why they will be 
leading the fights as activists against things like the death penalty or environmental issues and so on. Generally speaking, if I can summarize the humanist thought, they do not believe in a personal God or a goddess or a combination of goddesses and gods. They don't believe in any of that. They do not believe supernatural beings such as angels and demons, Satan and the Holy Spirit exist. They do not believe in heaven or hell or life after death. They do not believe in the separation of a person into body, soul and spirit. And they do not believe in survival of any individual in any form after death. They would argue as humanists that they have successfully developed moral and ethical systems which are independent from divine revelation. They believe that systems of morality and ethics can be developed through mutual cooperation, much like we develop laws and social customs and mores. People will willingly follow humanistic codes because they believe they are effective, that they are reasonable. And as they say, they lead to self-esteem. They are consistent with one's natural feelings of caring, compassion and sympathy. They are accepted by others and do not lead to condemnation or rejection. And according to them, no system of rewards and punishment are needed to enforce them. By the way, some of the famous humanists that you might be aware of would be men like Albert Einstein, the great physicist and conceiver of the theory of relativity, Betty Friedan, the feminist activist, Abraham Maslow, the psychologist and creator of third force psychology, Carl Rogers, who was a psychologist and creator of client centered therapy, Bertrand Russell, the great mathematician and philosopher, Jonas Salk, the physician and developer of the polio vaccine, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Andre Sakharov, the the physicist and human rights activist, and Gloria Steinem, the feminist activist and founder of Ms. Magazine. And you see it as well all through television in the philosophies of Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Phil. And of course, this type of thinking dominates Hollywood. It certainly dominates the Democratic Party as well as the liberal end of the Republican Party. But folks, none of this is really new. Such a philosophy has occupied the hearts and minds of men from the beginning, taking on a variety of names, variations found in virtually all manner of man-made religions. And frankly, at the core of all false religions is the pride of self-sufficiency. In fact, you will hear many people even today say, don't worship God. We are God. That's the thought. And so naturally inherent in that blasphemous belief is the idea that we have the ability to save ourselves. Well, elements of this was even found in the mindset of ancient Judaism and even much of Judaism today. We studied the rich young ruler last week. Remember, the center of gravity around which his whole life had to orbit could be divined by three words. He was self-sufficient. 
He believed that he could save himself through keeping rules. He was also self-absorbed in that he refused to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, he lived for self-fulfillment, desiring his wealth and his power and his prestige more than loving and serving Christ. And he was unwilling to get it, give any of that up. Therefore, he forfeited eternal life. Well, unfortunately, these things are even found in many evangelical Christian circles where many people have invented a new and friendlier Jesus one that winks at sin, one that has lowered the standard of righteousness. They've widened the gate where many people can enter into this thing called Christianity. They've made it very easy to believe in Jesus. And frankly, there's no cost whatsoever to discipleship. In fact, you just whisper a little prayer or sign a card or join a church or get baptized and you're in. And by the way, now that you're in, you're free to maintain the passions of your heart, namely to remain self-sufficient, self-absorbed, and to continue to seek self-fulfillment. So now all you need to do is show up for church every now and then or do some religious things or have, have some type of a profession of faith and do a few good works and you are guaranteed eternal life. Well, sadly... The fuel that energizes much of this deception is the unbelievable wealth that we enjoy in our culture. We suffer from what many call affluenza. And this is precisely the issue that Jesus now addresses in Matthew chapter 19. And if you will follow along, I'll read the text this morning before we unpack it together. Beginning in verse 23 of Matthew 19, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones Judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake, for my name's sake, shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. To help you understand this marvelous passage of scripture, I've divided it into three Categories. First, we will see the ruse of saving yourself. Ruse is a word that simply means the deception, the hoax, the sham of saving yourself. Secondly, we're going to see the reality of being saved. And thirdly, the reward of salvation. First of all, the ruse of saving yourself, the deception of, of that notion. You see, at, 
At the heart of all false religions is this idea that we can, through our own merit, achieve salvation as opposed to genuine Christianity that tells us that salvation depends solely on divine mercy and grace imparted by a sovereign God. And every religion has every false religion, I should say, has various hoops with which people must or I should say through which people must jump in order to earn their salvation, because, again, they feel they're sufficient to do this. There are rituals and ceremonies. There are memberships. There are for some groups there. There's penance to pay. There's baptism, good works, whatever it might be. And this is what was reflected in Jesus original encounter here, encounter with the rich young ruler who, as you will recall, last week really wanted, sincerely wanted eternal life, but not at the expense of being willing to give up his wealth and of his self-righteous pride to repent and follow Jesus. Now, with this in mind, Jesus says in verses 23 and 24, Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This whole idea of a camel going through a needle, which is obviously impossible, was nothing more than a Jewish colloquialism used in that day for the concept of something being impossible. That's what he was saying. Now, some would say, well, is Jesus saying that that wealthy people cannot be saved? And if so, what's the definition here of wealthy? Well, not at all. And you must understand the culture and the context. And we're going to look at that here this morning. But we first need to understand the very formidable barriers that wealth erects against genuine saving faith. First of all, please think of this. Scripture clearly teaches the dangers associated with wealth. Let me give you a smattering of a few passages in the word of God. In Mark 4, you remember Jesus' parable of the, the seed and the sower. There he says that the seed falls among thorns. And as we studied that text, we've seen that that is symbolic of those people who are wealthy, that are enamored with material possessions. For example, the rich young ruler. So the seed of the gospel, he says, falls among thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. Then he gives three things here. And the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And what we literally see is the more wealth we have, the more tempted we are to be obsessed with possessions and all that the world has to offer. It is very seldom that we see wealthy people come to Christ because they feel self-sufficient. They don't sense any need for God. They have no time for him. They're too preoccupied, as Jesus said in this passage in Mark 4, with the worries of the world. I have been around many wealthy people. In fact, about the first 10 years of my counseling practice before I became a pastor, I worked almost exclusively with highly visible, wealthy people, primarily People that claim to be Christ, and I'm sure probably around half of them truly were born again. But this whole idea of the worries of the world, I saw that with them. They were never satisfied with enough. They had an insatiable appetite for more. Even with as much as they had, they wanted to earn more money. 
And they're all always worried about protecting their investments. Those are the worries of the world, as Jesus talked about. They were also blinded by, as Jesus said, the deceitfulness of riches. You know, wealth always promises that which it can never deliver. And it fuels the pride of elitism and and narcissism where wealthy people many times and I'm not saying all of them, but many times as a narcissist, which basically means I'm special. The rules don't apply to me. I can live above and beyond. I'm over you, etc. That's what they begin to think. And we have seen some even this week in the Tycho scandal, have we not, with the people that were caught up in that very type of thing. And it's my experience in working with people, and this has been validated by research, that many very wealthy people feel a victim of their wealth. And they tend to get very bored. They lose motivation, many of them. It's, they find difficulty in establishing relationships because they think everybody's out to get their money. They become depressed, they become paranoid, they become anxious. All you have to do is follow people that have won the lottery and you will see this lived out over and over again. Many other wealthy people become self-centered hedonists. They live solely for pleasure. They have to have homes all over the world. One isn't enough and one modest home isn't enough. You have to have huge homes and many of them. They have to vacation all over the world and then they tend to become selfish. They have no time for other people. Many of them become convinced that they know everything. And it's well documented that we see that the greater the wealth, the more eccentric people become. Howard Hughes is a great example of that. We know that for the most part, most wealthy Christians have a very difficult time humbly serving in a church. Because they're too preoccupied with their earthly possessions. They've got too many other things that they want to do and that they can afford to do. And so their fleshly passions pull them away. They have no time for the Lord's work because they're, again, caught up in all of the stuff that they have and all the stuff that they want because they have the wherewithal to purchase it. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will what? There will your heart be also. I have worked with many Christian artists, many celebrities, a number of professional athletes. And sadly, most of them, when they come into great wealth, become prima donnas. And I've seen fame and fortune ruin them. And I've said many times, for every 10,000 people that can handle failure, only one can handle success. Like the highly successful but foolish farmer in Luke 12, you will remember in that parable, a man lived for himself. He, he, had to, he kept earning more and more, and he kept building bigger and bigger barns, and he was consumed with the accumulation of more wealth. He had no time for God, and God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The vast majority of wealthy people have, as Jesus said, desires for other things 
and that that enter in and choke the word. That's why they are so hard to reach with the gospel. For them, the glorious gospel of Christ is not like the the pearl of great value that we have studied and the hidden treasure in the field, more value than more valuable than anything else they own. In fact, look with me for just a moment at first Timothy chapter six at the end here of first Timothy, Paul addresses this issue and beginning in verse six of first Timothy six, he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. Godliness, if you want great gain, you'll find it in godliness, not in wealth, as we're going to go on to read when accompanied by contentment. And by the way, this is the thing again with the wealthy. Over and over and over again, you find that they are never content with what they have. They've got to have more. And by the way, I would also add on the by the world standard, most every one of us in this room are wealthy. Verse seven, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content But those who want, which literally means to eagerly desire, those who eagerly desire to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain, but flee from these things, you man of God. Bottom line, it is very hard for wealthy people to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ in humble faith and obedience. And this is why the Lord Jesus says in verse 23 of Matthew 19, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he goes on to say, in essence, it is impossible. Now, here's what Jesus was saying. Please understand this. There was a Jewish tradition in that day that in essence said the accumulation of wealth was not only a great virtue, but it was a sign of divine blessing. When you attained wealth, that was a certain indication that you were more spiritual than the poor, that God had blessed you more than the poor. Now, mind you, Jesus very lifestyle blew this whole thing apart. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He said that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was basically homeless. But the rabbis of that day, and mind you now, the disciples are aware of all of this, and certainly Jesus is aware of it. The rabbis of that day had contrived a law to protect the assets of the wealthy, And most of them were wealthy. In fact, what they came up with is that it was basically a sin to give away more than one fifth of your assets. So what they would do is calculate one fifth of their assets, and that would be the limit. And spirituality was basically measured based on a percentage of how much you gave of your one fifth limit. All right. You're beginning to understand now where you think Jesus was coming from with this whole idea 
of how hard it is for wealthy people to come into the kingdom. So in their deception, they reasoned that wealthy people could basically purchase God's blessing through their giving. Because after all, they had more so they could give more. So God is going to be glorified more through wealthy people. Moreover, the rich could afford to buy the very best of sacrifices. And if you were to look in the court of women in the temple where they would give their money, there were 13 trumpet shaped receptacles that were put in a very public view where everyone could ooh and ah when they watched the wealthy people come and pour their money into these receptacles and you could hear it rattling around. It was a great spectacle. And now Jesus is basically saying all of that is a sham. All of that is a ruse. There's no spiritual benefit to being rich. There's no spiritual benefit to being philanthropic. In other words, to give generously. There's no merit in any of that. You can't save yourself. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, this was shocking to the disciples. So in verse 25, we read, and when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, well, then who can be saved? And you know what they were thinking? My goodness, if the wealthy can't buy their salvation, well, what about all of us who are poor? Well, having exposed the ruse of saving yourself, secondly, we see the reality of being saved. Verse 26, and looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are are possible. In other words, this idea of your self-sufficiency and your self-righteousness is bogus. But God is able to pry a man's heart away from his possessions. God is able to loosen a man's grips on the things of the world. You know, I've seen this happen with one phone call in many lives. All you have to do is take a person who is absolutely consumed with the things of the world, have them pick up the phone, and on the other end, somebody says, your wife has just been killed in a car accident. Your child has just been brought into the emergency room and is not expected to live. That's all it takes, something like that. And suddenly the things of the world are meaningless, aren't they? Suddenly there's nothing more important than understanding God and submitting to him and living in the light of his glory. Dear friends, never underestimate the power of God and the power of the gospel to transform people. But again, the righteousness of God cannot be bought. That's what Jesus is saying. Salvation cannot be earned. Uh, Sinful human beings have no resources to pay the penalty for their sin. Only Jesus Christ is the one that is righteous, as 1 John 2.2 tells us. He is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction that placated divine wrath against us as sinners. And while wealth tends to blind the rich to their spiritual bankruptcy. Quite frankly, whether rich or poor, no man can save himself. But with God, all things are possible. 
Word of God tells us that it is God who grants repentance that leads to the knowledge of the truth. Second Timothy two twenty five. Jesus said in John six forty four, no man can come to the father unless the father who sent me draws him. The word draw means to irresistibly compel. On rare occasions, I've seen the father's irresistible drawing at work with the wealthy. It's a marvelous sight to behold, especially with those that are rich fabulously rich and very famous, some of which I've worked with. It's an amazing thing to watch people, by the grace of God, begin to mourn over their sin and to confess their sin and to repent of their sin and cry out for the mercy and grace that only Christ can give them. Only Christ can give them. And then what you see along with that is suddenly they're gripped with their stewardship responsibility. They begin to understand that nothing that they have even really belongs to them. It's all God's. And you watch the things of the world begin to lose their appeal. And they begin to serve rather than to be served. And they become teachable rather than being arrogant and think that they know everything because after all they're rich and famous. They be start becoming content with what God has given them. They begin to manifest the fruits of the Spirit. And one of the things that's amazing when you see genuine repentance with anybody, but especially I've noticed it with the wealthy, they begin to feel comfortable with serving in obscurity. And I think for many of those people, they can with great conviction sing that chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will what? Will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, there is great power and there is great joy in saving grace. This is the reality of being saved by God and his mercy and grace. In contrast to the ruse, the sham, the hoax of any system that would tell you that somehow you can save yourself. But notice thirdly, the reward of salvation in verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? I find it interesting here. This is a fair question. The Lord did not rebuke them. Did not rebuke Peter because he was frankly speaking for all of them, as was so typically the case. He was basically saying, Lord, we've left our careers, our family, our our, our friends, uh, the the safety of our community. We're now hated because of you. We've left the fellowship of our community, the fellowship of our synagogue. We've left everything to come after you. What then will there be for us? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I know many pastors and many missionaries have asked that question. It's an enormous sacrifice to serve the Lord in a full-time capacity. Your life will be filled with stress. It's a constant struggle for financial concerns, at least with with many people in full-time Christian ministry. 
You experience relentless rejection and persecution from unbelievers and unfortunately from so-called believers alike. You know, I warn people when they come to me, as they have many times over the years, especially young people, they come and they say, you know what? I believe God is calling me into full-time Christian service. And I find myself always being guardedly optimistic with that, but also being very cautious and and telling them, boy, be, be very, very careful here. It's not as glamorous as you think it might be. Make sure that when you had that calling, it wasn't just a quiver in your liver. Make sure that it is something that you are absolutely certain of. Something that has been affirmed by other people who have watched your life. Because following the Lord, even if you're not in Christian service, in full, I should say full-time ministry service, is, is a very difficult thing to do. But especially as I think about the disciples and, and other pastors and missionaries and whatnot. I mean, folks, if God has not called you to do that. You're going to be utterly miserable. And even if he has, you're only going to be able to survive what is ahead of you if you maintain an eternal perspective. Because your reward is in heaven. It's not here on earth. And this is Jesus' message to the bewildered and concerned disciples. I find it interesting. He did not tell them, hey, come on, guys, cheer up. Look. You guys have been following me, so let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to get a great church to pastor in a beautiful city. Everybody's going to love you. Everybody's going to respect you. You're not going to have any problems in the church. People are going to want to sit at your feet and learn from you. You're going to make loads of money. You're going to have a beautiful, head, a fancy home. You're even going to have a great television and radio ministry. Everybody's going to look up to you. You're going to be a best-selling author because, after all, nobody can resist this wonderful message of self-denial and repentance that you will preach. No, he didn't tell them that at all. I find it interesting that his encouragement to them centered around eternal, not temporal blessings. Notice in verse 28. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me. All right. This is this is where he's starting here. You, you, you people who have followed me, you disciples here in the regeneration, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you say, what on earth is he talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me explain it to you. The word regeneration here. Palangenesia in Greek. It's a, it's a wonderful term. Uh, it means new birth or it means rebirth. By the way, it's used only one other time in the New Testament with reference to our new birth as believers. And that's in Titus 3, 5, where where Paul tells us that, that he has saved us not on the basis of our deeds, but he goes on to say, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. And renewing by the Holy Spirit. But here in Matthew, this new birth is a reference to the long-awaited millennial kingdom. 
that has been prophesied all through the Old Testament. And we read it prophesied even in the New Testament. But keep in mind, when the Lord comes again at his second coming, we, his saints, will come with him. We've been snatched away in the wonderful rapture. The rapture of the church has occurred. The tribulation judgments have been poured out upon the earth. We have been to heaven now and we have received uh, our rewards at the Bema seat. And then at the second coming of Christ, we come with him. The first time he comes in the rapture, we meet him in the air. He comes for his saints. When he comes his second time, he comes with his saints. And at that second coming, the, 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 the earth will be renovated. It will be returned back to Edenic splendor. This sin-cursed creation will be renovated and the Lord will reign for a thousand years. Now, by the way, keep in mind here, this is not the eternal state that will happen at the end of the thousand years. At that time, the heaven and the earth will be recreated, not just renovated, and all sin will be utterly eradicated. In fact, Isaiah 65, 17 says that he will create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind. But what the Lord is telling the disciples, those of you who have followed me at the regeneration, something is going to happen. In other words, at the time of restoration, when things are restored, both physically and spiritually, something's going to happen. You're going to reign with me. We read about this, for example, in Romans eleven twenty six. This will be a time when all Israel will be saved. By the way, this is a great text for those who have fallen into the error that believe that somehow um, God's blessings now have been given to the church and he's finished with Israel. Friends, there is a distinction between Israel and the church. For many reasons, I would say this, but certainly here in this text, when he says all Israel will be saved, there has to be a distinction between Israel and the church, because if Israel referred to the church, this text would beg for relevance. This will be a time when all Israel will be saved. And he goes on to say in Romans eleven twenty six, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Friends, this will be the time when the father will give the son the nations as his inheritance. And according to Psalm 2, 2, he will break them with a rod of iron. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 11. Many of the blessings of the millennial kingdom, this will be a time when the wolf will dwell with the lamb, when the cow and the bear shall graze and their young ones lie down together. It goes on and describes how that a nursing child will play by the cobra's hole. This will be a time of universal peace when the root of Jesse shall stand as a banner to the people. The Gentiles will seek him, the Lord Jesus And his resting place shall be glorious. By the way, later on, Peter preached on this very topic in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 21. He preaches and he tells the people to repent. And he tells them that Jesus will bring in times of refreshing. Times of restoration of all things. Literally, these times refers to epochs or seasons or, or, or eras of physical and spiritual blessing upon a regenerated earth. And again, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies about millennial blessings. 
But friends, this will also be a time of national restoration for Israel. The, and, and, and again, this is the kingdom age that Jesus is talking about, that the disciples were in hopes that Jesus was going to bring in during their lifetime. This is what they were looking for. But this will be a glorious time when all the redeemed will reign with Jesus, the anointed one. And folks, that includes us. As Daniel prophesied in Daniel 7:27, then the sovereignty, and by the way, the then there is referring to at his second coming when he establishes his millennial kingdom for a thousand years, then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And also, this will be a time when, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 2, the saints, that's us, will judge the world. And it is with these glorious truths in mind that Jesus now encourages his disciples. He's saying to them, men, let me give you just a fraction of the reward that will be yours for leaving everything and following me. Verse 28, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, in other words, he's promising them a unique and glorious place of ruling and reigning during the kingdom. By the way, you say, well, Judas is with them. Where does he get the twelfth one? Well, you remember that. Matthias took Judas's place shortly before Pentecost in Acts 126. So this is the promise he's given. And this was predicted, by the way, in Isaiah 126, for example, when there we read, Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. And of course, Jerusalem is far from that today. But there is a day that is coming. Daniel prophesied the same thing in Daniel chapter nine, beginning in verse twenty one. There he has a vision of the Antichrist waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived, catch this, when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Child of God, please hear this. These are glorious truths, glorious predictions decreed by a sovereign God intended to encourage our hearts as undoubtedly it encouraged the hearts of the disciples. Yes, while in the present, many times there will be days of darkness. But friends, the future is bright. It is glorious beyond imagination. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ that we have loved and worshipped throughout our lives. We're going to be able to reign with Him in a glorified body. We're going to be able to throw off this body with all of its problems and all of its stupidity, all of its ignorance, all of its finiteness, and certainly all of its sin, and worship and reign with the Lord on a renewed earth for a thousand years. And that's just a warm-up to the eternal state. Revelation 3.21, Jesus promised 
that we will all share the privilege of authority and as we govern with him during the kingdom age. And there we read to him who overcomes. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Friends, this makes earthly suffering seem rather insignificant, doesn't it? It certainly does to me. And I hope that rubs off on you. I mean, friends, either this is true or it's not. And I believe it's true with all of my heart. Is it any wonder why Paul would tell us in Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. What's the revealing of the sons of God? It's when the saints come with the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming in our glorified bodies. This text points to the indescribable blessing of our resurrected bodies when we come to rule and to reign with the Lord Jesus. What a profound encouragement this must have been to the disciples. And friends, it should be to each and every one of you that name the name of Christ. May I speak just real pastoral to you for a moment? Those of you that tend to do as I do from time to time. You start moping around. You get that Eeyore syndrome, you know. Oh, everything's so bad. Look at all this bad stuff happened to me. Folks, come on. Get your eyes off of the garbage that's going on. Around. Yeah, it's going to be tough. Welcome to a fallen world. But look beyond that. That's what Jesus is telling them. Oh, but I've, I've just sacrificed so much and all I see is the wicked prospering. Oh, boo-hoo. Put away the violin here. You know, enough is enough. Look what Jesus says in verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall what? Shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. Well, may I challenge you, friends. Get serious about serving the king. Because you know what? He's coming again. He is coming again. Let me make it real practical. Those of you that are working from time to time in that nursery when nobody else is looking and you're struggling with all of the children and many times you're in there and your replacement didn't show up and didn't call anybody to tell them that you weren't showing up, that they weren't showing up. Or they showed up and it's 15 minutes late. Be of good cheer. You know what? What you're doing is of more value than anything you could do in your career. You know why? Because you're serving the king and he's watching that. Those of you that are teaching Sunday school, those of you that sing in the ensemble, those of you that clean the floors, those of you that work with children's ministries or whatever it may be. Please know. That what you're doing has eternal significance and the Lord will reward you. Don't look for your reward here. Boy, if you're looking for that, <laughs> you're going to be greatly disappointed. Because it's just not going to happen until the Lord returns. Oh, sure, He's going to give us great joy. And we can be content with what we have. And in that godliness, there is great gain, as we read. But think of all of the time. Now, think of this. 
Think of all of the time and the resources and the energy we spend on things that are eternally insignificant. That are absolutely worthless when it comes to the grand scope of living for God and His glory. And for those of you who sacrifice little, may I say that such an attitude betrays how little you think of the sacrifice that was made for you. Friends, live in the light of His glory. Oh, may I ever fuller be consecrated Lord to Thee. Train my eyes toward heaven to gaze that joy will follow me all my days. Let's pray together. Father, again, we rejoice in these great truths that you have given to us in your word. Thank you for the contentment and the peace that belongs to all of us who have placed our faith in you. And thank you, Lord, that even though times can be hard from time to time, that we have everything that we need. You've promised to take care of that. And thank you that the real joy comes in the morning. Thank you for the living hope that we have that someday not only will we be able to rule and to reign with you, even as you promised the disciples. But Lord, even after that, we have an eternal state that we cannot even begin to comprehend. Lord, thank you for these wonderful truths that causes all of the sufferings of this life to pale into utter insignificance. May we live in the light of your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.